0: Chapter 5 of the Posthumous Essays of John Churton Collins. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Posthumous Essays of John Churton Collins. Chapter 5 Edmund Burke. THE TWO MOST PATHETIC FIGURES IN POLITICAL HISTORY ARE TWO OF THE GREATEST MEN WHO HAVE ADORNED IT, Demosthenes AND BURKE. BOTH, ANIMATED BY THE PUREST MOTIVES, PATRIOTS TO THE INNERMOST FIBER, WITH NO THOUGHT, WITH NO AIM BUT FOR THE PUBLIC GOOD, WORE OUT THEIR LIVES IN LEADING FORLORN HOPES AND IN FIGHTING, LOSING BATTLES both were prophets with the curse of cassandra upon them to be found wise after the event to be believed when all was lost who can read the philippics and Olympiacs? who can read the speeches on american taxation and on conciliation with america without indignant astonishment at the stupidity and supineness of those whom such irresistible logic could not convince such overpowering eloquence arouse but demosthenes saw athens at the feet of a macedonian despot and burke saw england dismembered of america and at war with half the world of the superhuman efforts made by the great athenian to retrieve the disasters in which the neglect of his warnings had involved his countrymen there was not one which was not thwarted either by a cruel fortune or by the perfidy and levity of those whom he was striving in their own despite to save burke's failures and baffled virtues resulted in less tragical issues it is true but they must have been equally mortifying and grievous to frame measures and propose schemes the nobleness and luminous wisdom of which posterity was to discover and to see them ignored or defeated by corrupt and selfish factions and by his own timid colleagues to address to empty benches masterpieces of political wisdom eloquent with an eloquence the like of which mankind had never heard since cicero to be the one man who solved correctly almost every political problem of his time, only to find himself denounced as a visionary and fanatic. Such was Burke's experience of public life. On the losing side in every important action of his life, he was on the losing side to the last, perishing miserably amid the ruins of his party and the wreck of his hope if the closing scene of the life of demosthenes is more awfully impressive it is scarcely more pathetic than the scene on which the curtain fell at Beaconsfield. history has done justice to demosthenes it has not done justice to burke the whigs have never forgiven him for creating a schism in the party and have availed themselves of his grievous errors with regard to certain aspects of the revolution to represent him if they wished to speak tenderly of him as a madman if they wished to speak harshly as an apostate but he was neither a madman nor an apostate he was a very wise and a very honest man assuming as he did that the revolution on the continent was a precedent for a similar revolution in england and that what was at stake was nothing less than the whole fabric of our social and political system he was perfectly justified in taking it was imperative on him as a patriot to take the course he did once taken and the fire kindled in him the rest followed he never deserted his party his party deserted him of all the charges which have been brought against Burke, the most baseless is the charge of inconsistency. Lord Boham has said that it would be difficult to select one leading principle or prevailing sentiment in Burke's later writings, to which something extremely adverse may not be found in his former it may be at once conceded that on a superficial view of burke's attitude towards the constitutional struggle of which wilkes was the centre towards the american revolution and towards economical reform and of his attitude towards the revolution in france and the revolutionary party in england there seems much to justify the charge it would be very easy to marshal an array of sentiments and opinions drawn from the thoughts on the present discontents, the American speeches and the speech on economical reform against an array of sentiments and opinions called from the reflections and the letters on a regicide peace, and ask triumphantly in what way they can be reconciled it would be easy to point out that in 1772 he supported a bill for granting the dissenters privileges from which they were excluded by the test act and that in 1790 he opposed a bill granting them those privileges but if we look a little carefully into them we shall find that these seeming inconsistencies are easily reconciled that burke's political creed in 1796 was precisely what it was in 1771, that it had changed in no article whatever. What had changed were circumstances, and the change in Burke was no change in principles and tenets, but in the part he was forced to play, the attitude he was compelled to assume for the conservation of those tenets and principles. A short sketch of his career. Footnote he was born at dublin probably in seventeen twenty nine but even the year of his birth is uncertain till the breaking out of the revolution will help us to understand how much of a piece that part of his life and conduct which those who taunt him with apostasy deplore and execrate and excuse only on the ground that he had become half insane was with that part of it to which they point with pride and gratitude few men have entered public life so admirably equipped for its duties and so peculiarly predisposed both by circumstances and training to approach it in a large and liberal spirit his father was a protestant his mother a roman catholic and his first teacher a quaker he was not only entirely free from religious prejudices but what was more important had had it early brought home to him that truth and fruitful truth has many sides these early surroundings certainly go far to account for one of burke's most striking characteristics his flexible and hospitable mind the variety of his studies at trinity college dublin and the ardour with which he pursued them we all know how at one time he devoted himself to mathematics And had his Fuhrer Mathematicus, and then betook himself to logic, till the Fuhrer Logicus yielded to a passionate devotion to history, the Fuhrer Historicus yielded in return to the Fuhrer Poeticus. Leaving Trinity College with immense stores of the most varied acquirements, having indeed surveyed within the measure of a youth's capacity almost the whole area of learning, he betook himself to London. There his literary occupations, among them the political survey of Europe in the annual register, and a history of the American settlement, as well as his duties and opportunities while in the service of William Gerald Hamilton, were of invaluable service to him in his political education. In the year 1765 he was, by the influence of Lord Varney, Returned to Parliament through the borough of Wendover. The party to which he attached himself, and in the cause of which he laboured so long as it retained its identity, was a party led by the Marquis of Rockingham. It was a party distinguished by its integrity, its disinterestedness, its moderation, and its consistency during a time of almost unexampled political profligacy and incompetence it was the party which retained in their purity the principle of that great whig party which had brought about the revolution of sixteen eighty eight with those principles it never paltered it upheld them while the subserviency of a selfish faction to an obstinate and tyrannical king and the feuds and dissensions of what should have constituted the opposition to this tyranny imperiled our liberties lost us america and brought us to the lowest point of national depression it upheld them when a third power called into being by the natural course of progress and into importance through being made the counters with which these factions played their game namely what is now known as the democracy was threatening to turn the scale to the opposite extreme the ark of the covenant of this party was the Constitution of 1688, their aim the maintenance of a due equipoise between the principles represented by monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy. But we must guard carefully against attaching to democracy a sense it bears now. The quote, people end quote, were then, politically speaking, non-existent, and were absolutely unrepresented having no share at all in the direction of affairs. In fact, democracy in our sense of the term was an unknown quantity in the Constitution of 1688. The democratic element was represented by the commons, and the commons were, as political agents, the nominees either of the crown or of the aristocracy, and great landed classes, or members of these last bodies it would be a great mistake to associate burke at any period of his career with democratic ideas the only parliamentary reform he and his party ever contemplated was to readjust the balance in the commons between the representatives of the aristocracy and the representatives of the crown a balance which was then overwhelmingly preponderant on the crown's side and to infuse but very cautiously an element representing the interests of the great mercantile classes. His Ark of the Covenant was, let me repeat, the Constitution of 1688. That was his ideal. On the preservation of that depended, in his belief, the safety, the prosperity, the glory of the English nation. This places us in the very center of Burke's political ideals, explains his motives of action, and enables us to reconcile his policy and position between 1790 and 1796 with his policy and position between 1765 and 1789 as the constitution which he so nobly describes had been the result of compromise of a cautious and sober adjustment of the principles of prescription to the principles of progress as it combined the results of purified experiment with the results of a spirit of reverent conservatism so it became ideally as he himself had said a sort of bible to him and a bible in a double sense a bible which he believed contained the gospel of england's political salvation and a bible out of which he derived the teaching which guided his actions and moulded and coloured the whole of his political conduct and policy if we look at all the chief events with which he was associated before the breaking out of the revolution and note the part he played in them we observe the same prudent moderation the same spirit of compromise. Thus, with regard to the American Revolution, he upheld the imperial authority and maintained the right of England to tax, but deprecated the exercise of that right on the ground of inexpediency. Thus, he was wholly in favor of relaxing the commercial and legislative restriction on the Anglo-Irish, and even lost his seat in supporting a bill in favor of alleviation but though he tried to educate his party on the irish question he never pressed the matter further thus he at first supported clarkson and his crusade against the slave trade but abandoned the attempt for fear of injuring his party by alienating the west indian interest then he opposed parliamentary reform on the ground that it would lessen the power of those orders in the state who had the greatest stake in the country Thus, in 1790, he refused the dissenters the relief he had been willing to give them in 1772, because the time was not propitious to such indulgence. The same moderation marked his scheme for economical reform. He resisted all attempts which involved radical changes in any essential part of the Constitution. I heave, he said, the lead every inch of the way I make. In his notes on the Amendment to the Address, 1774, he has a typical passage. Nothing is more beautiful in the theory of parliaments than that principle of renovation and union, of permanency and change, that are happily mixed in their constitution, that in all our changes we are never wholly old or wholly new that there are enough of the old to preserve unbroken the traditional chain of the maxims and policies of our ancestors and the law and custom of parliament and enough of the new to invigorate us and bring us to our true character by being taken from the mass of the people and the whole though mostly composed of the old members have notwithstanding a new character and may have the advantage of change without the imputation of inconsistency. He says in another place, The old building stands well enough, though part Gothic, part Grecian, and part Chinese, until an attempt is made to square it into uniformity. Then, indeed, it may come down upon our heads altogether, in much conformity of ruin, and great will be the fall thereof footnote observations on the present state of the nation and footnote and he has no objection to modification and he would have the fabric elastic for a state without the means of change is without the means of its conservation his political philosophy is penetrated with the same spirit it is of the essence of compromise its criteria are the possible the expedient the becoming It is not concerned with abstract principles except in their bounded application to facts and circumstances. Circumstances, he writes, give in reality to every political principle its distinguishing color and discriminating effect. These circumstances are what render every civil and political scheme beneficial or obnoxious to mankind. Footnote REFLECTIONS ON THE FRENCH REVOLUTION end footnote. As Mr. Payne has observed what a German metaphysical theologian at the end of the last century, after many wearisome attempts to square religion with abstract principles observed of Christianity, Thus, Christentum est keine Philosophie, may be exactly applied to Burke's conception of politics. Die Politik ist keine Philosophie. It is merely empirical, not a matter of rules and ideas, but of observation and practice. It is a computing principle. What it has to deal with are differences of good, are compromises, sometimes between good and evil, sometimes between evil and evil. For it works, standing on earth, not wrapped above the pole." Hence his defense of party in answer to the rhodomontade of Bolingbroke, and his constant insistence on the necessity of fidelity to party interests at almost any cost, except when issues of important moment to the welfare of mankind are imperiled. I can see, said his friend dr johnson that a man may do right to stick to a party that is to say he is a whig or he is a tory and he thinks that one of those parties upon the whole the best and that to make it prevail it must be generally supported though in particulars it may be wrong he takes its faggot of principles in which there are fewer rotten sticks than in the other though some rotten sticks to be sure and they cannot well be separated footnote, boswell's tour to the hebrides and footnote this was exactly burke's view and of rockingham's party in its faggot principles and aims there were certainly far fewer rotten sticks than in the faggot of any other party in burke's time it is not he contended a question whether monarchy whether oligarchy whether democracy are in themselves desirable but whether in their purity or their combination they are fitted to the needs of a particular community thus he argued of the revolution that if a great change were to be made in human affairs the minds of men would be fitted to it the general opinions and feelings would draw that way and that those who persisted in opposing this mighty current in human affairs would appear rather to resist the decrees of providence itself than the mere designs of men. The late Lord Coleridge once said to a friend of mine, an enthusiastic young barrister, You cannot greatly help justice till you have ceased greatly to care for her, This was putting it a little cynically, but it exactly indicates Burke's conception of the relation of abstract ideals to the possibility of what can be realized. He had as little confidence as Bishop Butler in the perfectibility of man or of the world. Facts are facts, and they must be confronted. He had no sympathy with the democracy, and yet he wrote, in all disputes between them the people and their rulers the presumption is at least upon a par in favour of the people the people have no interest in disorder footnote thoughts on the cause of the present discontents End footnote. so with respect to the american colonists he said the question with me is not whether you have a right to render your people miserable but whether it is not your interest to make them happy footnote speech on conciliation with america end footnote and again i do not know the method of drawing up an indictment against a whole people footnote speech on conciliation with america in temper and constitution burke was one of the noblest men who ever lived a patriot as pure as hampton and washington a philanthropist as ardent as howard and clarkson as passionate a lover of liberty justice and light as passionate a hater of all that impeded them as any man who has ever been in the van of aspiring humanity as his career between 1765 and 1789 shows and shows conclusively but his sagacity and practical wisdom his knowledge of human nature and of the conditions and laws under which life moves and men work kept all this from wasting itself either in quixotic action or in quixotic speech i pitched he said referring to the outset of his political life, my ideas of liberty, lo, that they might stick to me, and that I might stick to them to the end of my life. No man was ever more free from utopian delusions. No man ever so shy of drawing bills on hope for experience to discount. What had actually been achieved, and what was demonstrably possible, bounded the horizon of his political sympathies and of his political aspirations. It is in such passages as the peroration of his speech on conciliation with America that his greatness is seen. Here he burst into flame and blaze, for they could serve occasion, the patriotism, the philanthropy, the love of justice, liberty, and light which ever glowed an intense but suppressed fire within him here pure reason plain sense and simple facts penetrated with passion and clad in glorious apparel seemed like the raptures of the poet the revolution found burke in the vigor of his genius and of his intellectual powers but depressed harassed and broken by four and twenty years of almost superhuman labours. He had failed in everything except in bringing Warren Hastings to trial. He had seen America torn from England, government a chaos of factions, his party wrecked, its remnant hurried into follies and crimes which had first disgraced and then proscribed it. And now the last and saddest chapter in his troubled life was to open in may seventeen eighty nine met the states general in july of the same year the bastille was taken then followed the declaration of the rights of man and the decree of the fourth of august and the eruption of the mob into the palace of versailles these events drew from burke in november seventeen ninety his reflections though the work was directly called forth on account of an address given by dr richard price a Nonconformist minister to the revolutionary society contrary to the view taken by price burke fiercely attacked the revolution in these reflections and in his subsequent writings viz thoughts on french affairs and a letter to a member of the national assembly in which he prophesied the course things were certain to take the shifting tides of fear and hope the fight and the pursuit the peril and escape the alternate famine and feasts of the savage and the thief after a time render all course of slow steady progressive unvaried occupation and the prospect only of a limited mediocrity at the end of a long labor to the last degree, tame, languid, and insipid. They will assassinate the king when his name will no longer be necessary to their designs. They will probably first assassinate the queen. Footnote, letter to a member of the National Assembly. and footnote. Meanwhile, he had set the kingdom on fire having previously broken with Fox and Sheridan, and split the Whig party in two, then came out in answer to the numerous attacks on him, quote, an appeal from the new to the old Whigs, end quote. 1791, in which he demonstrates that it is not he who has changed, but they, that he remains true to the old flag, that of the true Whigs, while they have gone off into mad democrats and incendiaries to break up and ruin the noble english constitution the ark of the old covenant the whigs of this day he concludes by saying have before them in this appeal their constitutional ancestors they have the doctors of the modern school they will choose for themselves The author of the reflections has chosen for himself the conduct of the minority written two years later is a defense of his own conduct and an arraignment of that of fox and his friends meanwhile the revolution had been proceeding just as burke had prophesied horror on horror accumulating the king had been executed war had been declared between england and france the armed coalition was melting away england and austria were left alone france was in the hands of the directory and everywhere triumphant fox and his party had of course opposed the war with france from the beginning pitt never loved it and was now anxious for peace with the directory so in seventeen ninety-six pitt opened negotiations for peace with france it was to oppose that peace that burke wrote and wrote in fire the letters on a regicide peace those scathing philippics against what he called the pusillanimity and madness of england in attempting to establish friendly relations with a country which was aggressively republican and revolutionary identifying france with lawlessness and anarchy with the principles of all that was base and brutal with all that was inimical to civil order and private decency denouncing her as the enemy of the human race as a common and insufferable nuisance stinking in the nostrils of europe as the blood reeking awful loaded lair of robbers pariahs and assassins he conjured his countrymen as they valued the constitution as they valued the existence of their national life and church throne state as they valued social order honor religion reason decency to have no peace with france not to condescend to recognize its existence as a political unit to expunge it from the roll of nations to obliterate it from the map In no work's extent are there more manifest passages of sustained and fiery eloquence, invective more terrific, sarcasm more blasting, more jewels of rhetoric and felicitous expression, nay, and making all allowance for intemperance and extravagance, heat and fury, more jewels of crystallized wisdom. They were a voice from Burke's deathbed, they were written when he was reeling under the blow that broke him the death of his son when disease and anxiety and sorrow had bowed and broken him a miserable triumph over miserable adversaries closes the scene it was known that burke was on the verge of actual beggary and pitt procured for him a pension without bringing the matter before parliament the duke of bedford and lord lauderdale seeing in this a weapon for attacking pitt opposed the pension in the house of lords the head of the house of bedford was not quite the proper person to oppose a grant from the crown and in the letter to a noble lord so justly described by lord morley as the most splendid repartee in the english language burke expresses his surprise that objection to his pension should have come from that particular quarter, for the pension was surely not altogether given without some equivalent, and was, after all, only a small one. But, quote, The Duke of Bedford is the Leviathan among all the creatures of the crown. He tumbles about his unwieldy bulk. He plays and frolics in the ocean of the royal bounty, huge as he is, and whilst, quote, he lies floating many a rood he is still a creature his ribs his fins his whalebone his blubber the very spiracles through which he spouts a torrent of brine against his origin and covers me all over with the spray everything of him and about him is from the throne it is for him him and italics to question the dispensation of the royal favour sadly the old man pointed out how more than an equivalent might have been paid for the royal bounty had it pleased god to continue to me the hopes of succession i should have been according to my mediocrity and the mediocrity of the age i live in a sort of founder of a family i should have left a son who in all the points in which personal merit can be viewed, in science, in erudition, in genius, in taste, in honor, in generosity, in humanity, in every liberal sentiment, and every liberal accomplishment, would not have shewn himself inferior to the Duke of Bedford, or to any of those whom he traces in his line. Pathetic indeed. Pathetic beyond expression that it should have been in the midst of feuds like these in the midst of gloom and storm like this with no ray of the glory that was beyond even faintly perceptible to him that the great soul of this man who had labored for england and for mankind always in righteousness and sincerity for five and thirty years was to take its flight we now know that burke with reference to the revolution was a false prophet that if he discerned clearly the immediate consequences he did not discern the ultimate consequences of that stupendous convulsion he miscalculated on all sides he miscalculated even ludicrously the power of france and of those whom principles allied with her he confounded what was accidental and what was essential he did not perceive the solidity steadiness and good sense which underlay the superficial tumult and agitation in england but let us not underrate the value of his anti-revolutionary writings if we have outgrown much which he regarded with superstitious reverence if the glamour with which in his eyes sentiment invested monarchy and aristocracy is now dimming and fading if we are pressing to other goals than had defined themselves to him if experiment and experience have justified us in feeling confidence where he doubted and mistrusted we should do well to remember and find guidance in many of his characteristic precepts and warnings that if we look forward to posterity we should not forget to look backward to our ancestors that prescription and tradition should neither be contemptuously ignored nor rudely violated that what has grown up historically can only perish historically that the application of abstract rights and principles to an organization so composite and artificial as political society and its economy is the most difficult and delicate of problems that the only sure test of political wisdom is expediency-expediency not in the narrow and selfish but in the highest and most comprehensive sense of the term chapter five edmund burke